Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. The letter of Romans from the Apostle Paul, starting in chapter 3, verse 21. And we are continuing our summer series called The Cross. So it's one thing that Jesus died on the cross. It's another thing to know why he died on the cross. And that's what we're pursuing this summer, a better grasp of the why question. Now, there's a deep mystery to the cross. We would never plummet steps, ever. But God still wants us to truly know some things about the cross of Jesus. Just like our knowledge of a good friend. We will never plumb the depths of our best friend. It will never be an exhaustive knowledge. But that means, that does not mean that we can't still learn true things about our best friend. And that's our goal this morning. Last week we learned from Galatians that the cross accomplished for us. Something called, and this is a big five-syllable word that we all are getting used to, and that is, do you remember? Justification. Justification. This word is so central to our Christian life, as Gerhard Forda puts it, the Christian life could be called the art of getting used to your justification. And this morning we're going to continue to explore, and we will encounter justification again, This time in Romans chapter 3. So I'll read the text and I encourage you to follow along starting in verse 31 this morning. This is God's word. 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so, Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And, Lord, we confess we don't need this morning a pep talk. We don't need to learn new life skills this morning. What we need most is an encounter with the risen Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would do that by your word this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I first got married, which was about 17 years ago, this August, Josie, my wife, and I lived in a small apartment near Grandview Avenue on 3rd. And Josie and I drive by our old apartment almost every day. It's across from where 3rd and Hollywood is today, what Gibby's used to be. And uh, as we drive by this old apartment, it often brings back all kinds of memories from that year in that apartment. And one of those memories that we laugh about now uh, is one of our first marriage squabbles. What was the squabble about, you guys? It was about the television series, 
24. <laughs> I kid you not. Uh, if you don't know what that is, 24 is the most stressful television show ever produced. <laughs> Every episode is an hour in one impossibly stressful 24-hour day. A day in which, you know, the safety of all civilization hangs. And every hour takes you to the center of despair and ends with the most hilariously excruciating cliffhanger you could possibly devise. And in those days, there was no such thing as Netflix. Or if there was, it was a mail-order Netflix. And so we probably rented the first season of 24 from the local video rental on Fifth Avenue, which is now Bibby Bob. Remember that one? Anybody? It popped in the first DVD, and many hours later, popped in the second DVD, and probably many hours later, popped in the third DVD. But by the time it was 2 a.m. in the morning, we weren't even halfway through that day. <laughs> Called 24. And so I told my wife, Josie, I said, I'm going to bed. And this blew her mind. It just blew her mind. She said, how on earth can you just go to bed without knowing how this thing ends? Let's at least skip to the very end and watch the final episode. To which I said, no, that's impossible. That is anathema. You never skip to the end. You wait until you, the end comes. And so I blame 24 for our first marriage flop. Because 24 is engineered to create tension. It just is. And because humans are hardwired for resolution. And when things look desperate in our lives, we crave Resolution. And every single episode of this show, and many others that you can probably think of, take you to the very edge of hopelessness, and then hope emerges seemingly out of nothing. Well, this is how I feel when I encounter verse 21, the first verse of our passage this morning. Because Paul, the apostle, had just spent the first three chapters of Roman taking us, yes, to the very center of despair, the very edge of hopelessness. Look how he ends things just above our passage, starting in verse 9. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are, where? Under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, their tongues, uh, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So let's just summarize where we stand right now. We are all, verse 9, under sin. We are all, or we will all, verse 19, be held accountable to God. And there is, verse 20, literally nothing we can do about it. I was watching Marvel Endgame with my family this week, and that's, it's that moment when Thanos snaps his fingers. There's nothing we can do to reverse the damage, to undo the sentence of judgment, 
to clear the condemnation that our sins deserve. So where do things stand? Well, Paul leaves all faithful and responsible readers of this letter standing under God's just wrath. And so it's at this moment of, of, of hopelessness that we encounter verse 21. But now. Verse 21, but now. But now is the gospel, which means good news. We are at the end of our rope, but now. We have given up on any hopeful future, but now. We are resigned, perhaps, to walk in guilt and shame, but now. Maybe we've made peace with the fact that this broken world will one day just end the way that it is today, like Robert Frost put it, maybe in fire, maybe in ice, but either way, the world just ends. No hope, no renewal, no rescue, but now. But now what? Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, if you are a bit fuzzy on what the righteousness of God means, any brave hands? Don't worry. Don't worry. You're not alone. Folks have been spilling ink on this phrase for centuries. But here's how I like to understand it. I hope this helps you. Replace for a moment the righteousness of God with God's secret rescue plan. This is a phrase from Sally Lloyd-Jones' children's Bible. And sometimes we need to return to kindergarten to understand God's ways, don't we? And here's why it helps me. The righteousness of God can basically mean two things. Righteousness that describes God. Righteousness that describes God's character. He is righteous. He is upright. He is faithful. He is true to His Word. He is right all the time and in every way. Righteousness of God. That phrase can also mean righteousness that comes from God, a righteousness from God, a right standing with God. And many people request that we separate these two things and pick one. But I think they belong together. The righteousness of God and the righteousness from God. They belong together when you think about God's secret rescue plan, His rescue plan. God made promises to rescue all of us all the way back into the book of Genesis at the very beginning. And in Christ, think about this, His righteousness, His faithful character, His yes to all of His promises of salvation is manifested, is, is shown forth in Jesus. God does what He says He does. His character stands true. And, that's this one, and in Christ what happens? A righteousness from God is displayed. And like Paul said, we can be right with God in Christ. His righteousness and our salvation are connected. And so think about what Paul's saying here. Despite all evidences, despite our sin, despite our inability to do anything about it, God's righteous character has been revealed in in. In a certain way that provides a pathway to right standing with God has been revealed. Both. 
Where is that pathway? Where is that door? Well, he says it's not in the Old Testament law, though it pointed to this all along. Where then? Well, it's not our obedience or our good moral effort. It's not even a pathway that we walk down. Where is this righteousness of God? He tells us. It's a person that we embrace in faith. Jesus. This is the rescue of God. Jesus. This is the rescue of God that manifests God's perfect righteousness. His character, His goodness, His holiness. It is also a righteousness from God. It gives us right standing when we embrace Jesus by faith. It's the rescue plan. It's God's rescue plan. And it's achieved by achieving nothing. It's actually achieved by admitting our need and laying hold of it with desperate hands. And if you do, Paul tells us what is involved in this rescue. What do we see about this rescue Later on in this passage, we see three things. And these are these big words I've been warning you about all along. We've already talked about one of them, justification. The next one is redemption. And the next one is propitiation. Now that is a mouthful. Let's say that again. Propitiation. Now we're going to talk about what that means. And we're not going to skip over it. Why? Because what Paul talks about. Paul uses the word. We should know the word. So here we go. Justification. God's rescue involves justification. So look again at verse 22. There is no distinction, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift. What is justification? Well, sometimes big ideas are best understood by their opposite. The exact opposite of justification is condemnation. This is a courtroom word. Our sin. As Paul puts it, all the ways that we fall short of God's glory, all the ways, as one theologian puts it, all the ways that we manufacture idols in our hearts, all the ways in which we pursue that which is not God to be God in our life, our own wisdom, our own careers. Whenever we sin, we are essentially following an idol, saying, God, you are not wise, you are not good. This path is better. In all of these ways that we fall short of the glory of God, Paul says is deserving of condemnation. But in the divine court of law, God declares you right, not condemned, justified. You can be right with God and God can remain right at the same time by the cross of Jesus. He says this in verse 26. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So that means that the only way to salvation is through the cross of Jesus. So that even those in the Old Testament days are saved by the cross. God was overlooking their sin till this moment. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just, God is just. And he is a justifier of sinners, no longer condemned, but right in the sin. So somehow, God managed to be full throttle just and full throttle merciful. It's only possible at the cross where God the Son willingly manifested 
the full holiness of God and the full love and mercy of God at the same time. Just and justified. This is how Australian theologian Michael Bird puts it. It's a great quote. I love this. It helps me. In the cross, follow this. God is vindicated. God is vindicated in the cross. How so? He's vindicated against the world that vilified his glory by exercising his punitive judgment against the world. So at the cross, God is justified. God is, in a sense, vindicated. But in the cross, also, God vindicates those who believe in the divine love and mercy displayed in Jesus' cross. God's glory is vindicated at the cross, but if you trust us in Jesus, that same cross vindicates you. It makes you right before God. Sometimes we're used to thinking of the cross only as a way that forgives us of our sins. It sort of wipes our sin record clear. And it certainly does that. It forgives us. God provided a way for us to be forgiven through the cross. But what we often don't do is we often don't take that extra step that justification offers us, which is this. You're not only forgiven, you're justified. You are right with God. He doesn't just wipe your sins away and say, okay, now I'll tolerate you and I'll see how you do. I hope you don't mess up again. And by the way, if you mess up again, you can go to the cross again and forgive you again. That's not at all the gospel. The gospel says you are in Christ right before God's eyes. Do you believe that? It's hard to believe. That's why this word keeps popping up so many times in Paul's letters because... We so desperately want to be justified by works of the law, by things that we do. And Paul over and over and over and over again says, God's rescue is in the cross and it involves your justification. Second thing we see here is God's rescue involves redemption. Redemption. So justification and now redemption. Look again at verse 22. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul tells us that here that the means through which sinners like me are justified is through the redemption that is in Jesus. So in those days, redemption was a price you paid to free a captured slave. And so the cross of Jesus is described as a redemption, as a rescue, as a ransom here. I just want you to think for a second about this. Do you see how God's rescue involves both justification and redemption? And consider how we both how we need both. Justification deals with our true guilt. Redemption deals with our bondage. Author and retired pastor Tim Keller once made the generalization that older generations tend to feel their sin in courtroom categories. They feel guilty for wrongdoing, for not doing what they should have done or for doing what they shouldn't have done. And justification really lands the gospel in their heart. His observation, and I think he's generally right, is that younger generations tend to feel their sin in redemption categories. We don't feel guilty even when we should. I'm an elder millennial. 
I would put myself in that, gen in that generalization. But we do feel trapped. We feel addicted. We feel held in bondage by our sin. Well, the rescue of God involves both. And both are need needed for the sinner. Justification and redemption. Jesus purchased you. He bought you with a price. You are not enslaved. But you are his. Which is to say you are free. Redemption. Justification, redemption. Now third, God's rescue involves propitiation. Buckle your seat. No, it's not that hard. Look at verse 25. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. So what in the world is this word? Well, it might help us to go back to the Old Testament to understand this word. The word translated propitiation here in this text is translated as the mercy seat in the Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? So if you rewind to the Day of Atonement in Yom Kippur, this is the great day once a year when God would atone for Israel's sins. The great day that God would give, uh, the great day that God gave to his people as a gift so that he could be holy and yet be in their midst, be present through the tabernacle. God would show up on the day of atonement when Israel's sins would be dealt with. Where? Where would he show up? He would show up at the mercy seat. In the Holy of Holies. And according to Leviticus 16, the blood of the sacrifice would be poured on the mercy seat. This is how God dealt with his wrath against sin, and it's what enabled continual fellowship with his people. And so Paul here is saying something very significant about the cross of Jesus this morning. The cross is God's once and for all mercy seat. Where God achieves atonement, atonement, at one meant. Atonement. Another big word that we overcomplicate and get fuzzy, and it's not that complicated either. Atonement simply means being in relationship, being at peace with God. Atonement was achieved in the Old Testament through the mercy seat, and here we see the cross is the once and for all mercy seat, where God achieves atonement. Once and for all. This isn't anything that we do. It's all God from beginning to finish. When I was in college, I believed in God, but to quote J.B. Phillips, my God was too small. I decided I would devote my entire summer learning about the attributes of God, just reading sort of the classic attributes of God. So instead of worshiping a sort of smorgasbord God of my own making and my own preferences, I decided, what if I humbly explored how God himself reveals himself in his word? What happened? Well, God got much bigger. His holiness got much bigger, which meant my sin got much bigger too, which meant that the cross of Jesus got much bigger too. And His grace and His mercy. See, the cross is not just a historical event or a beautiful example of historical courage. It is God's mercy seat where all of God's wrath is dealt with. So God's rescue plan has three elements. Justification means you are right with God. Redemption means you are no longer a slave. 
Propitiation means that the just wrath our sins deserve have been put away and dealt with by our triune God. Joyful. And this all because of one thing. The cross of Jesus. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for you? Well, two things. Number one, embrace your need for rescue. And this is the hardest thing. This is definitely the hardest thing. We have to embrace our need for rescue. This is what this passage is sort of screaming. Embrace your need for rescue. Sociologist Christian Smith, he famously surveyed the religious views of Americans, even American Christians, and he discovered that most Americans believe in God, but this doesn't really look like, this God doesn't really look like the God of the Bible. The American God, according to Christian Smith, is three things. Moralistic, therapeutic, and distant. Moralistic, so we believe, just generally, again, this is like average, what do you believe about the world and about spirituality kind of survey. Generally, folks think that God just simply demands that we be moral. That we do the right thing and we don't do the wrong thing. That's God. We also believe that God is therapeutic. Meaning he just exists to kind of make us feel good. And to give us equilibrium. And we also believe that God is just sort of distant. He's there, but he's out there. He's not involved in our lives. He's not involved in history. He's not involved in my life. Well, this is our American religion, our default then none of what we just read and explored in Romans 3 matters or makes sense. We have no need for rescue. Okay, but if God's word is true, then our problem is way worse than we realize, isn't it? If God is holy and our biggest problem in life is all the ways that we don't give God glory, and all the ways that we are in deep need of rescue by our bondage to our to ourself and to our to sin to Satan, then we don't just need therapy, we need rescue. In order for us to receive his rescue, we must first embrace our need. And maybe that's you this morning. We just need to embrace our need afresh. We've been living the myth that we are okay by ourselves. Allow this word from God to smash that myth and bring you fresh awareness of your deep, deep need for rescue. Which takes us to our second application. Embrace the gift of God's rescue. It's a gift. It's grace. Paul wants us to see this. His rescue is pure gift. It's pure grace. The other day, I saw my neighbor at my local coffee shop and he bought my coffee. Which was super nice of him. And I immediately said, I'll pay you back. I'll get you next time. It just came out of my mouth. I didn't even think about it. Well, this is how most of us think about and even receive God's rescue. We're glad for it. But we immediately say to God, how can I pay you back? I once met a person who told me that all of his volunteering in church was to pay back all the years that he lived about from God. I think the Apostle Paul would tenderly come beside this man and say, God's rescue came apart from works. 
specifically works from the law. This phrase, apart from works of the law, which Paul uses here, it's a technical phrase. It's worth understanding what it means for our lives. Apart from works of the law, the law, the law functions in Paul's day in two ways. Human obedience and human membership. The human obedience part of the law would engender personal pride. Pride of the soul. I am the kind of person who does this or doesn't do this. But in those days, the law also functioned as a means of human membership. It said in Paul's day, I am a member of God's people. That engendered not personal pride so much as nationalistic pride. And Paul here says that our rescue came apart from both of those things. And so where does that leave us? We are called to lay hold of Jesus by faith. Francis Schaeffer famously described faith as empty hands. I love that. I use it all the time. We bring to God's rescue our empty hands. That's it. And we lay hold of it. It's a gift. So let me ask you this. Which aspect of God's rescue that we explored this morning do you need to receive with empty hands of faith? Is it the propitiation that Jesus brings? If so, hear the Lord say over you, you have peace with me. There is no condemnation for you. There is no condemnation for you. Hear the Lord say that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It has been exhausted on the cross. Your God, your triune God has dealt with it. Is it justification? Well, hear the Lord say over you right now, you are not just pardoned of your sin, but you are right in my sight. As Kelly Kapich always puts it, you are not just loved by God, you are liked by God. Or is it redemption? You need to receive this aspect of what Jesus brings to you in your rescue. Hear the Lord then say over you, I have paid the ransom price for your freedom. You are no longer a slave. You're no longer stuck. You're free. Lord, we come to you then with these empty hands of faith and we come grasping your rescue. That's what this text does for us. It reminds us of our deep need, but it also reminds us of our great gift that we have in you. Lord, would these aspects of the cross bring to us a profound sense of worship to you so that you would be glorified, so that we would be restored back to where we were designed to be, seeing your glory and the beauty of who you are for, for what it is, and free, free from condemnation, free from bondage to sin, free from fear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. 
For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.